Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. We, as a SEAL team, we just, we do the basics so well that when everything goes well or things go unplanned, you revert back to the basics. And we're so strong in the basics that we're able to be consistent. Like I said, it's the consistency that, hey, you're not in the jungle anymore, but being, having the, your gear on the right way. Like those fundamentals, kind of you sit back on the fundamentals. Yeah. Yep. And when things go south, which they always do we are fundamentally so sound that hey it's, it's it's a little bit of a hiccup but the overall mission didn't change just you know this variable changed and it's easier to adjust when your basics and fundamentals are so strong that when curveballs show up it's like yep yeah, like and we train for worst case scenario so when you get down range it's almost easier because you've anticipated so many of the variables at the special operations level, things move a lot slower. Navigating life's transitions can be difficult, but it can be done and it can be done in ways that allow you to thrive. And that's what today's podcast is about. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Transitions in life are diverse and they look different for everyone. And that's very much the case with my guest today, who has become somewhat of an expert in navigating them and has put his thoughts into a book titled Unsealed, a Navy SEAL's Guide to Mastering Life's Transitions. Joining me today is Mark Green, a former Navy SEAL who, despite facing a career-ending injury in football and dropping out of college, found the resilience that led him to the SEAL teams. And the transition from college athlete to college dropout, then from SEAL training to enlisted SEAL and from sniper to civilian proved more painful than exciting, as you're going to hear in our discussion. Through the process of navigating his own difficult transitions and helping other veterans with theirs, he's discovered that there's six phases of transition, and each phase follows a predictable pattern. 
And we're going to talk about his journey today, his experiences, these phases, and and so much more. So let's not waste any more time. Mark, let's get this party started, brother. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for um, having me on. Dude, this is going to be awesome. And I would be remiss to say for the people listening, um, I'm about to ask a really, uh, really selfish question. But you have a USC hat on. And I'm a huge Commanders fan. Uh, unfortunately, and I'm hoping you have better football taste than me. You're a football guy, so I know you, I know you like football. But we just grabbed Cliff Kingsbury from from USC, and Caleb okay. Williams is sitting right there, and you've had a front row seat. So I just got to know, what is he bringing to an NFL team when he gets drafted? This is going to be real quick, people. This is just selfish. <laughs> well, I think it's the fact that he had his anticipation or his, his knowledge of the game. Yeah, and it's just all improvised. Not all improvised, but he knew the system so well that he knew where all his receivers were. He knew what all the checkdowns were, and the guy was just consistent. Mm -hmm. Just I think when you look at college sports, the people who don't make it to the next level either can't adjust to the speed of the game, which I mean I think all of it—not foot speed, but just how fast your brain more the mental side of things, yeah. Yeah, so he, I mean, athletically, he's he's there. Unfortunately, so many guys who are at that level are are, are there. I just think he can really adjust to the speed uh, of the game. And I think having Cliff teach him, you know, what the what the game at the next level is going to look like, I yeah. think added so much to his um, the his value as a first round draft pick. Did you? I, I know you were you were a college athlete. You played football, and and you were actually quarterback. Did you ever? Yeah. Did you ever watch a game and just think, man, what if? Like, what if that shoulder injury didn't happen? Just what if? Sometimes I do because I got to work out with Randall Cunningham. Oh wow, that's crazy. So um, he was at a um, a passing camp in Dayton, Ohio. A guy named Martin Bayless um, put on that camp. Um. Keith Byers and Martin. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I know Keith Byers. So, yeah, yeah. So um, all Dion would show up, all the big big guys would show up. And um, Randall showed up, and I'm just like, oh, man. I mean, I put, yeah. himself, I put himself in his pocket and just said, all right, you're going to teach me everything you know. And it was so much conversation that he taught me. But then he taught me, um, okay, here's how you throw the ball. And it was just incremental stuff. Like I had – 80% of it as a young or a high schooler. But then that 10% that he added, so when I got to college, it was exponential because he sh he showed me how to just the lay of the lay of the land. And then uh, I learned my first, I learned football in college because in high school, it's just raw athletics. Yeah. So one day, Sean, the coach was like, okay, Mark, you're going to drop back. You're going to put the way you're going to put the guy in motion. It's going to offset the linebacker a step or two. Was he going to drop the DB back? And then you're going to do play action. It's going to freeze the other linebacker. And in the middle of the field, it's just going to open up. And that's where you're going to throw the ball. So when I dropped back and I saw it, I was just like, oh, it was so surprising that I got sacked because I just stopped. Because <laughs> I, was like, I, I was like, holy crap, I, I just learned football, you know? And then, um, and then it was just now, I, once I got it, I was just like, okay, this all makes sense now. And um, I just, it was just a, an exceptional coaching staff at Miami of Ohio back then. Um, and then when I went to Kent State, um, the dynamics weren't the same. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the coaching staff wasn't the same. And um, I, I lost my love of football. So when I, to answer your question, when I look now, I'm like, I can appreciate what I see. And I also know that people in stands don't know what they're looking at half the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was watching games at USC, I could call the play because I was like, okay, he's going to check down this because they're going to cover two or a cover three walk or um, here's what this motion's doing. And I could explain the game and, but also say, Hey, if the tackle misses this pull or the guard misses this pull, then he's going to have to check down or run it. I feel like I've, I mean, I grew up playing sports and I feel like I took like a lot of people playing sports took so much from it. And I always feel like any conversation I had or anything that was related to that. I could always at least take one thing from, from that situation. So when you think back from when you were sitting there having conversations with Randall Cunningham, is there one thing you think back to that just beyond football, you come back to and say that that's still applicable now? It was, he said that athletic ability is great. Being consistent is the superpower. So you look at Tom Brady or you look at anybody who's, exceptional at anything they do be it football soccer whatever sport it is or whatever they're doing it's they're consistently good right you'll you'll watch an nba game and some somebody will show up and hit 50 points 12 assists you know no no turnovers 10 for 10 free throws and the next game he has two points and can't hit anything and the greats are just consistent over time and when randall said that he's like you know your athletic ability is going to diminish over time, but your your smarts in the game is going to improve, and then you're going to be able to be more consistent. Um, and that was true throughout everything I do. I always want to be consistent. I love that. That's really cool. And then part of that, I mean, we get into a transition, right? Because your book is about transitions, how to how to cope with transitions, how to thrive in transitions, how to how to get through them. And one of the one of the first transitions you had, major transitions you had, was a really significant injury to your shoulder mm-hmm. when you were when you were playing football, which basically ended your career. I mean, right. I mean, if you're a quarterback and you can't throw the ball, you can't play quarterback, right? So, right. I, I mean, if you take yourself back to that situation, what? I mean, what's going through your mind? How are you How are you thinking about what, I mean, even thinking about what that transition is going to look like? I'm guessing there's a lot of hope you could still play. Um, what did you do in that moment to sort of get you to that next step? Well, it was, I didn't have a plan at all. I was 20 years old and I was going to play football until I was 50. Um, and the thing that I reflect on is I didn't have a plan. So once that injury I, I mean, once I got the hit, I knew something catastrophic had happened. Um, and then when the doctor confirmed it, he said, look, you're going to be able to have you said this arm fully in about four or five years naturally, or we can do surgery, cut you wide open and hope for the best. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go through that surgery for a possibility. And, um, so there I was just sitting, I was like, okay, I'm going to have use of this arm again in a couple of years. Um, and then my friend Jeff showed up. I was like, bro, forget what the coach said. We're going to go be Navy SEALs. And <laughs> when, he, <laughs> when he showed me the video, I was just like, 
it was a um it was an amazing moment because i knew at the second i saw the opening credits of that video i was like yep that's it that was on a betamax that was on a betamax right i think it, i think VHS <laughs> just shown up yeah just shown up yeah i mean i mean th that's the interesting part too is uh i mean to say this is pre-9-11 is is like i mean beyond beyond the conversation right this is this is early to mid 90s i mean the the only thing that i mean for one there's no internet right so you're not going right. on there and, and anybody's familiar with like david goggins he you you hear like all the videos he went online he was watching videos and all that kind of stuff and but you didn't have access to that i mean all you really had was like michael bean and charlie sheen and navy seals right and you're thinking this is this is what it's going to be like we're just going to go and do this well you mean i mean you forget steven seagal I mean, oh yeah yeah what am i thinking he, Rob Lowe even did stuff that uh the finest hour. Yeah. And then the rock. So I mean, you had little snippets, but you know, a lot of people in the special operations community talk about, you know, the the stigma of writing a book, right? But before the internet, before YouTube and for all this technology, all you had are books. Mm -hmm. Marcinko wrote a book that, you know, probably had the equivalent of what Top Gun did uh, in the aviation community. You know, he put a spotlight on what SEALs were. And so many of the people in my generation of team guys noted that book as the catalyst for, hey, I'm going to be a SEAL now. What was it like? I mean, I mentioned pre-9-11. What was it like being a SEAL in in kind of that pre-9-11? And I've, I mean, you talk about books. I mean, I've, I've, pretty much tried to read everything Adam McRaven has put out. Um, mm. I, I love the guy and I think he's, he's got a lot of great insights and advice, but a lot of really cool stories. Um, and his career started pre nine 11. And mm -hmm. he, like he talked about some of the differences from his point of view and then kind of after nine 11 happened and how things kind of ramped. What was your experience pre nine 11? Um, being in the seals and then how did you see that change so, so when you show up at the seal team you're just on overload on gear and tactics and just learning the job of being a seal and you learn that what you did in, in basic at buds is not applicable at all that all that does is you've earned the right to uh learn learn the seal job and eventually become a seal so you're you have to be good at so many different things diving um land warfare demolition weapons um jumping out of airplanes i mean you have to be good at all those things and i mean it's a fire hose on full blast so the first platoon was just learning from the older guys but it was clear that we were fighting the previous war Right. You know, it was we were we were doing Vietnam era tactics because that was the last big engagement that challenged our tactics. So when September 11th happened, um, I was out of the fight. I was in the Pacific. But when we went over, I got my commission in 04 and I showed up at SEAL Team 8 and we knew we were going to Iraq and the um, development group had come had taken some hits using those old tactics and they're literally right down the street and said, stop everything you're doing. Everything we're doing is wrong. And here's what it looks like. 
here's what this ward looks like. And it was completely different. So you had the, the basics still stay the same, shoot, move and communicate that always stays the same. But now it's like, you're not trying to be quiet and sneak, take 10 hours to go hundred yards in the, the jungles of Vietnam. It's like, you're under you're in rocky terrain yeah. using vehicles and it, everything's just changed and they that command is so forward leaning that they would come off deployment and come to the SEAL team and say okay here's what's new and here's what we're scrapping and it's not it's real time they showed up they came back and within days or weeks they're debriefing and then they're saying okay we're disseminating this to the SEAL team and incorporating it today because when they go down range in a couple months, this is what it looks like. How, I mean, cause I, I feel like that situation is really applicable to a lot of people listening, right? Where you've been planning for something, training for something, and then there's some catalyst that happens and all of a sudden everything's different. How mm -hmm. in those moments, how did you, and, and what advice would you give to people to gain confidence in having to grab on to new tactics in an environment that is just so ambiguous. We, as a SEAL team, we just, we do the basics so well that when everything, you know, everything goes well or things go unplanned, you revert back to the basics. And we're so strong in the basics that um, we're able to be consistent, like I said, it's the consistency that, hey, you're not in the jungle anymore, but being, um, having the, your gear on the right way. Like those fundamentals, kind of you sit back on the fundamentals, yeah. Yep, and when things go south, which they always do, we are fundamentally so sound that, hey, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hiccup, like a second or two of hiccups, and it's like, okay, this changed a little bit, but the overall mission didn't change just you know, this variable changed and it's easier to adjust when your basics and fundamentals are so strong that when curveballs show up, it's like, yep. Like, and we train for worst case scenario. So you have seals training you that try to throw everything at you that could make you think on the battlefield. And when you get down range, it's almost easier because you've anticipated so many of the variables at the special operations level um, that when you go down range, it's um, things move a lot slower. You mentioned, you mentioned buds and it, for those listening, there's, there's probably some of you out there might not know what buds is. It's, it's sort of the, uh, if you want to call it like the basic training for Navy SEALs, it's, it's very far from basic, I would imagine, but it's, it's <laughs> sort of, sort of that equivalent, I guess is the best way to characterize it. Um, and I'm always really fascinated to know because you especially for you going in before the internet where you don't necessarily have access to videos of buds now you can trip over them on youtube and you can go see mm -hmm. what's happening and do those things but you you're going into an environment and a training that all you know is it's going to be really hard and but you don't know exactly how it's going to test you um what limits it's going to push on how i mean physically I think anybody can imagine how you train for it. You just try to do everything, but mentally, how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for things that you just don't, you don't know what's going to come? For, well, so I think everybody's different, but for me, um, once I got there, I was completely overwhelmed and you can't, I mean, you can't prep for the physical part of it when you first get there. 
and then you're really not prepared for the mental, um, but you still have the fundamentals. So when I went through, I quickly realized that um, there are time limits, right? So every four hours, I would get hungry and say, like, oh, man, oh, we're getting ready to go to lunch. So I, I broke it down into incremental parts that I could I could manage. And a lot of people look at buds or the day of training as an entire event, whereas I looked at it within four hour increments. So then once you get the mindset of like physically, I can do it mentally, I can do it. And now I got to make sure I don't get overwhelmed by everything that's going on. So in order to do that, it was OK. Four hours, we're going to be swimming for two. We're going to get, and I just walk through the day and it's like, okay, yeah, easy, got it. Um, and then right when you think you're comfortable, they throw a hell week on you. And then it's like, okay, this is different, but it's not really different because the fundamentals are the same. You still have to, you still have to perform. Um, but then you just have to dig a lot deeper when you're cold and wet and miserable for 24 hours a day. And you just have to drop that discomfort and, you know, the mission's still mission, but the mission's a finished hell week. Okay, got it. So the fundamentals are the same. You just have to, now you have to dig so much deeper and you have to rely on your teammates because everybody's going to have a bad day and you'd look to your left and to your right. Jack Carr was on my left sometimes and Andy was close by. Andy Stump was close by and they're, they're miserable too. And it's like, all right, well, it's not just me then. Okay, we're good. And, yeah, it's um, it's funny how much uh, being miserable with other people can really bolster you in those moments. Yeah, and you just find a way to, you know, early on if you're going to quit or not, I think. Man, quitting was never even an option. and It never even crept in. Like, the misery crept in, but this is so hard that I can't make it that I never even thought that one time. Did you, was there a, was there a moment knowing that you never had like if you want to say failure was never an option but was there a moment that you remember where you thought yeah i can do this and i'm gonna make it there was a gentleman uh senior chief mink and he was a plank owner at um the development group and he would he'd be watching me out of the corner of his eye and he was a really quiet guy and um i had i took a heat injury one day i overdid it didn't have enough didn't have enough to drink um, so I took the heat injury and one of my instructors was like, all right, you're going to be hydrated inside and out, which means I had to go get wet when it, on command, go jump in the water and drain my canteen. But I was always having a good time. So um, after that injury, Senior Chief Mink comes over and says, hey, Green, come on over here. And I thought I was in trouble. Senior Chief doesn't talk to anybody. So he said, hey. You're going to, you're going to be fine. All right. I know you're going on Saturdays and swimming and you're always bugging the instructors like, Hey, how can I do this better? And he's like, but here's the last thing you need. And he looked around and he pulled out this bottle of uh bullfrog um, sunscreen. Yep. And he's like, everybody I've given this bullfrog to has made it through buds. And it's like, I'm giving it to you because you're going to make it through buds. And at that moment, I, I, it was like the Holy Grail, right? <laughs> he passed the Holy Grail on to me. And for some reason, it's just like, all right, I'm good. If the a guy at that level said, hey, Green, you're good. 
deep cleansing breath. I was just like, all right, well, let's get to the business of not disappointing the senior chief now because I have this bottle of uh, bullfrog and I mean, I can't break the cycle. Mm -hmm. So at that point, that was the catalyst. Like any doubt that I had before was all washed away with that the vote of confidence and that that symbolic um, trophy saying, hey, you're going to be one of the guys who makes it. I like what you said there, though. You didn't want to disappoint him. I almost feel like while it gave you confidence, it almost put a another type of pressure on you because you wanted to make sure not only were you performing, but I, I, I don't want to let this guy down. Yeah. And there were so many of those instructors, you know, instructor Gekka. I mean, Corey Knowles, there are several of them. I was just like, okay, those, these guys are hard asses, but at the end of the day, they're like, Hey, green, keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing. And we want to see you make it through here. So there were like four or five instructors. I just did not, I would not disappoint no matter what. So let's talk about another kind of, I'm going to call this like a mini transition where during your military service, you started, I can imagine you started to think about what is it going to be like after I'm out, at least initially. And mm -hmm. you made, you made the decision to, um, to finish your college degree, to, to really try to get to, to OCS office, officer candidate school and really advance not only your career in the military, but really set yourself up for, um, when you get out of the military, right? Mm -hmm. What, what made you start thinking about that beyond just the physical I'm waking up every day and man, it's just harder to, to heal. Like, I think a lot of us kind of get that, but like, was there anything that just motivated you to say, you know what, I need to start looking here further down the road than even I'm doing now. Well, I knew it was a finite career, right? You are going to be retired from that career. You're going to leave at some point. And at some point I like, I need to set myself up and my family up for, success once this is all done because it's gonna it's gonna be over at some point it's over for everybody so then all these opportunities just started popping up and hey you're gonna need to be productive beyond a bachelor's degree and i did some research and like well oh, they offer master's degrees that they can send you to um and i started every career step i took milestone i took i wanted to fill in the blanks that would holistically make me more valuable once this career was over and I knew I didn't want to stay once I once I left the community I didn't want to have a, a foot or a toe back in I was like hey look I need to one I'm not going to recreate the seal locker room ever like um and once that reality hit I was like okay um I'm not going to do this job anymore so I need to be as prepared as possible to do what's next. And that's just get as much education as you can, get as much um, leadership opportunities as you can, get as much diversity in your knowledge base as you could and make yourself valuable in a way that people are willing to pay you for your expertise. Yeah, it's sort of where you, I guess you transition. It, they're not paying you for your your physicality anymore. They're, right. they're, they're paying you for your mindfulness and kind of what you can bring strategically. Right. So I can't walk in and say, well, you know, I was a sniper in the military and like, okay, great. What does that have to do with TPS reports? Exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's, so, a, that's, a, that's an office space reference for all the people that are listening <laughs> that, that don't pick that one up. So, so yeah, I, I had to learn a new language of, Hey, your skill set 
on its face may not resonate, but hey, I can work autonomously. I can take in vast amounts of information, translate it, and then report it to you in a way that's digestible and meets the criteria. It always that's what blows, yeah, it always blows me away too, because I, I've had a lot of these conversations. I, I've never been like somebody formally who helped military veterans transition into private sector, but I've had a, a, a few of them. I, I would say, I would say more than a handful reach out to me and ask me questions. And they're really trying to figure out how to take what they, they did in the military and translate it into what would make sense in the private sector. And I'm always so astounded because the experience that yourself and other service members get in what you're doing, it's incredible. And mm -hmm. it's, there's so much value that can be had brought into the private sector. I understand when you're transitioning and your head's down, right? It's, it's all, you know, I call them like donut problems when you're in the middle and you're not seeing the outside, like yeah. it's yeah. really hard to see the big picture in that way. But, um, the, the amount of experience that, that is brought from roles like that in the military, you just get access to leadership skills, tactical skills, strategic skills that a lot of us just don't from a very young age. Yeah. Budgets, logistics, you know, um, everything. And you, you military people are great at, here's what the instruction says, or here's what this code means. So a lot of research is done. Like you have to be an expert at your job, not only the, um, doing of the job, but you have to have the knowledge base to, Hey, this is right. This is not right. We can't do this. This document says this. And just to one, have that spectrum of knowledge and then have leadership on top of that, and then be able to be autonomous when needed and be tenacious and relentless at uh, achieving a goal. You know, a lot of service members don't take that away because, you know, when I was in the SEAL teams, everybody's a SEAL. So if everybody's special, nobody's special. So you're constantly just, when you think you're at the top of your game, somebody shows up who's faster or shoots better or dives better. So you're always um, working to improve. You're never static if you want to be really good at it. You're just never static because somebody's coming after your stuff or somebody so far ahead of you that you're like, man, I, I need to figure this out. And um, a lot of service members bring that unconsciously to the table and don't realize mm -hmm. how much of an asset that is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a service member, um, obviously. And, and, but I was an athlete and it never goes away. Like right. sometimes you even feel bad about it, but you don't feel bad about it to, enough to stop. Because right, right. you're you're absolutely right. Like I'm there's a lot of people that get intimidated to to steal like your analogy, right? Or your example, like somebody who's faster, stronger, shoots better, whatever. And I think there's a lot of people that don't want to be in those environments. And they they're good with status quo and um and when that when that individual enters that ecosystem, they start to get intimidated. And I think there's also a, another faction of people that say, Okay, game on. And mm -hmm. you're going to raise your level and you're going to get to like, it, it's that iron sharpens iron, right? They, they come in and, and they're going to make everybody else around them better. It's sort of that. Um, I don't think this is an actual term, but it's sort of like that Michael Jordan effect, right? There's nothing yeah. anybody on that team could do better than them or better than him. 
but you know what? Yeah. He made everybody else better around him. And it was because he raised the level and then they had to raise the level. And it's, that's for me, that's a net positive. And you're absolutely right. I never thought about that, but that is absolutely something that military service members bring to the environments that they, that they're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sad because, um, the military doesn't let you know that here are the attributes that you have that are going to be valuable because mm -hmm. they have a mission that you need to, you know, you need to be at your best to sustain that mission and achieve that mission. Um, and they're worried about your expertise while you're in, but while you're out, it's like, Hey, you know, we, the mission is still going and this machine is designed to do well and thrive without you being here. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that I want to achieve in the book is like transitions are challenging, but you have the basics, you have the consistency, you have all the skills you need to perform. You just need to tap into it. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that mentor that I had that made me tap into it by bringing me to a comfortable environment where I wasn't comfortable and he's like, hey, you're you're doing fundraising. So I'm going to introduce you to my my buddies who significantly provide funding for for these institutions. Um, go. And I would just meet with these gentlemen and they'd ask me questions. And like and after and it was was not comfortable. But at the end, it was like, OK, here's what you did. Well, here's what you need to do better. Let's schedule a meeting in two weeks and we'll come back and do it again. And in the meantime, I have another buddy to introduce you to and you're going to do the same thing. So it was, it wasn't as a, I wasn't learning the industry from ground level as not having any skill set. It's just, we had to tap into the skills that I already had and then refine them to, to what my new environment was going to be. So you could thrive in that one again. As, as you take a look and I know in, in your book, you talk about kind of the, the six phases to, um, to transition and, the, I mean, for, for the people listening, the six phases um, you lay out, Mark, is isolation, indulgence, cocooning, emergence, grief, and resolution. What mm -hmm. part of what part of that story that you just told, like, where do you see that fit on that spectrum? Where you're sort of you're sort of out in the wild now, and you're you're learning on the go. You're sort of, I, I guess, the best way to put it is you're sort of building the ship after it's leave, leaving the harbor, right? You're mm -hmm. translating some of those skills and refining others. But where are you there? I if I had to say I would be on the indulgence side of it where you're just gorging yourself on information, right? And you're you're a lot of it's tangible, but a lot of it's intangible because you're taking in the environment and say, okay, what does this what does this feel like? You know, what is what does it feel like when you're reaching somebody and you're connecting with them in a, in some way that you can't put your finger on it, but it's certainly happening. And, and then you research like, okay, when you're closing on something, what does that mean? Okay, then you go read stuff on sales and you read stuff on closing the deal. And then you're like, okay, well, I see where this is applicable and I see where I'm at a deficit. So, and you're just like, oh, and you're just gorging yourself on it. And then once you hit a sweet spot, I think for me is where I would cocoon and then just kind of not withdraw, but I would really go into really deep thought because- um, the skill set that I used before doesn't really work. And I need to kind of transform myself into this new environment to where I can speak the language, thrive again, and be productive.
where do you find the most friction uh, sort of patternistically across this, this spectrum? So where, where do people, they, they start and, and you just see them hold up in an area? I, I think grief, but I, I don't think people. It's funny you say that. I'm so surprised that grief was at the end. Grief was like five out of six. Mm -hmm. why, why is that? And why, why does it hold people up there? Because you, you don't want to acknowledge you or, or you don't have the vocabulary to say, or never had the permission to say, man, I really miss the army. Or I really miss the Navy. Or, I really miss this. I really miss that locker room. And you kind of blow it off. It's like, ah, it sucked anyway. And you know, this, but you don't give yourself permission to, to sit in like, man, I'm mourning the loss of this life that I had, of uh, the support that I had for 20 years or this expertise that I had for X amount of years. Um, even though getting up super early and deploying sucked, I mean, those are some really great times, you know, and you're, you're surrounded by excellence all the time, right? Um, but then once it's taken away, like for me, I was a Navy SEAL on Friday with all the prestige that goes with that. And then on Saturday, it was just Mark. Right. So you, you touch on grief, but then you're like, you know what? I, I don't, I don't have time to sit in grief through this whole thing. I have to either find my next job or take care of my family or life keeps moving a lot faster. And then you're kind of desperate because you're like, I need to find a job now. I need to find um, something that I can do now because I still have to put food on the table. All the things that I had while I was active duty, those those things are still exist. And I really have to work really hard again to get back on my feet and make sure that my family, in my case, transitions with me as seamlessly as possible. So you don't really sit, have time to, man, I'm really grieving today and I really miss jumping on a helicopter or you know, jumping out of a, uh, an airplane at 13,000 feet or taking a sniper shot in training or going through it through the house. You know, you don't, you don't have time to sit in that grief. And then one day it catches up with you. You have to, you have to deal with it. And I didn't get to the grieving part until the end of my journey. I was like, Oh, that's what that was. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I've been, so I'm, I'm part of a group called the post, which was uh, founded by uh, actually another um, college and NFL quarterback, Christian Ponder, who played at Florida state and then played for the Vikings. Uh -huh. He yep. created, he created a group called the post, which is essentially uh, a community for former high level athletes. And part of the conversations people have are very similar to that. It's, it's missing it's missing the things that you didn't realize you were going to miss just the, the little moments like being in the locker room and, and razzing guys and, and doing, or, or waking up at 5.00 AM and, and having to go run Hills, but you know what, you're doing it together and you didn't think you'd miss this stuff, but you do. Um, so that people talk about that all the time. And another thing they talk about is not feeling like people understand them. Did you, did you struggle with that getting out? I mean, you mentioned you went on a Friday, you were a Navy SEAL, next day you're Mark. But your mindset doesn't change, right? You're still, yeah. that, you're still that guy that's pushing to, to be the absolute best version of himself and everything he's doing. And you now you get around people that are uh, 
and I hate to say it this way, but just sort of average, right? They're, they're the average mm -hmm. everyday person. Um, and you are somebody who is tip of the spear, best in class in what you were doing. And that's your drive, but it's, it could be challenging for people to understand that they would probably think, man, this Mark guy's super intense. I can't work with this guy. This guy's mm -hmm. driving me nuts. How, I mean, I know I've struggled with that a little bit in pockets, but I can't, I mean, I'm not in former Navy SEAL, I can't imagine what that must have been like for you trying to relate to people in that way. I didn't have, I didn't have a problem. I just, luckily, one of my skill sets is just connecting with people very easily. Mm -hmm. So the people part of it was not the problem. It was the intensity level. You know, my first um, project at USC was to develop a program and um, they gave me the parameters of the program and I just hauled ass, you know, full speed because I only, I only had one speed. Mm -hmm. I think two weeks later, I come back with this proposal. Like, hey, boss, this is really rough, but, you know, I'm about 90% there. We take a look at it. And he just kind of looks at me. He's like, well, what is this? He's like, well, this is the project you gave me. I'm done. He's like, yeah, but I expected this to be done in like a year. I was like, Oh well, yeah. Here, here you go. I don't, I don't work. I, you know, I didn't. We don't know in... what to say, right? Like, what do you say to that? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll, like... I'll go. I'll go back to my desk and I'll wait another three hundred sixty-four days, and then I'll come give it to you. Yeah, I was like, well, I assume that everything happens now in the military. So when the boss says, "Hey, I need this as soon as you can get it to me," well, this was no shit. As soon as I could get it to you, mm -hmm. um, so he had to. He had. To, throttle me back and say okay this is going to take a couple of years to figure out what you're doing here so um thank you for this project it looks amazing they published it and he said so but now we have to in this environment things take a lot of time so um learn as much as you can and then when i give you something just know that i expect it in a year i was like okay well, I can't do that. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> so I, uh, at the university, um, when I transitioned out of that job and into another one, my, I worked with a gentleman loosely and he said, Mark, we don't have enough work for you for five days a week. So just go find stuff to do around here. And I was like, what? I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went and got myself involved in everything I could everything so um so that's what i needed i needed all of that input i needed all those different tasks to do to keep me surprisingly focused because well, I, autonomy I, stuff you're passionate about yeah and i worked with football uh tennis team i worked with a cardiologist i worked at the business school and i just found stuff to do and um made a lot of connections there but it really kept my mind active because I think if I was just doing the job and that's it, I, um, I would not have thrived there because I would have, like, I don't have enough to do. And the grieving process would have happened a lot sooner. Um, makes, makes a lot of sense. I can understand that. Yeah. Um, I have one last question for you before we get into our, our final five. And that question is, if you could go back and you could say something to that 20-year-old version of of yourself mm -hmm. that is maybe he's sitting in the hospital 
trying to figure out kind of where do I go from here? Do I get the surgery? Do I not get the surgery? What is my future going to be like? What would you tell him? I would tell him to trust his gut. Um, because every time I've trusted my gut and done the work necessary to kind of figure it out, um, it's always um, worked out in the way I expected it to work. But there were a lot of things that I wanted to achieve that I didn't listen to my gut and I let outside people influence you. So, um, and I would tell that I would tell my young self to ask more questions, um, seek out expertise um, outside of your comfort zone. You know, you're surrounded like at a university, you're just surrounded by knowledge right and ex experience either be your coaches or your professors or upperclassmen you know it's just get all the knowledge that you can and i didn't learn that until later on um and luckily i peaked at that when i got to buds because when i was at a deficiency i was like hey instructor i know you're having a fit right now but i need to learn how to swim better he's like okay saturday at eight and when I was at sniper school, I was like, I need to shoot better. So um, what do I need to work on outside of working hours? And to the point, they're like, just green, just relax. All right. You have everything. Just absorb it and just practice because you have you have everything you need. You're just overthinking it. I was like, OK. Great but, advice. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I like that. Trust your gut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you now that we have the experience, we can look back and say, hey, my gut says this, I'm going to go with this, mm -hmm. but you don't learn that wisdom. I teach, I told my kids that they're incredibly smart. Like some couple of them are genius level smart. I was like, but what you don't have is wisdom yet. You know, all that knowledge is not very useful without the wisdom that you get over age. So when you're arguing with your dad and just realize that you don't have wisdom yet. You might be smarter than me, but you're not wiser than me. Right, right. <laughs> I, and I, I told my son one day, he was getting a little chippy. So um, I said, hey, son, I've taught you everything you know. He's like, yeah, Pop. He's like, but I haven't taught you everything I know. And he's like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, so I was is. like, just, just learn to be wise, son, and my daughter. I like it. Hey, let's get to these final five. So I ask these five questions to everybody that comes on. Um, All right. Let's start with number one. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Be consistent. There you go. I like it. I, I, I a one a one B has to probably be don't ring that bell. That's got to be up there. Um, the don't quit. Uh, that was imparted by my dad, actually. Yeah. Nine years old, Mad River Tomahawks in Dayton, Ohio. And he's like, son. All right, we're gonna start playing football, right? I was like, yes, sir. He's like, once you start something, you're finishing. Mm -hmm. so when i got to when i committed to buds and i got to the to the center on january 2nd 1997 once i was there the quitting aspect it wasn't even didn't even cross my mind because you know at nine years old when your dad's standing above you like hey boy there ain't there's no quitting around here it's like okay that's not even an option yeah. so to not quit it, it never even my mind so some things i'll do that i don't want to do i'll start it so i'm forced to, to finish oh there's some more good advice right there 
Yeah. Um, well, so let's flip it on its head then. Number two, what's the worst advice you've ever gotten? It, that it's okay to not give your best sometimes. And I think that starts to cascade. So if you don't give your best in one instance, like, well, okay, well, it's easier to do it the next time. Right. Yeah. So if you don't allow yourself to not give your best and, you know, not giving your best can mean that, you know, buzz is 180 days, six months long. You're not going to have, you're not going to be at your best all the time. And that's where you rely on your teammates and, um, you know, just not giving your best was not really an option because like I said, once it, once it starts, you know, it, it bleeds into everything and it pollutes everything. Yeah. I think one of the things that, that we impart on our kids is it doesn't have to be perfect, but the effort has to be perfect. And it's not mm -hmm. always, it, it's not always going to be, like you said, you're not always going to be at your best. You're going to have, let's, let's say you're going to have bad games. You're going to have bad days, yeah. but, but the effort should, should be analogous. And, and that's what we really try to make sure that our kids know, like focus on that, focus on the process and things will take care of themselves as long as you're exuding that effort. You're, you're pushing yourself where you want to go. So mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. Number three, who's someone in history that you would like to go back and have a conversation with? Genghis Khan. Who? I haven't got that. I got, I've got a couple of Churchills, gotten a Kennedy, Genghis Khan. Let's hear this one. Yeah. So, I mean, you have this guy who conquered conquered the world and put his imposed his will on everything he touched the bad side of you know millions of people were slaughtered but it's like so what is your mindset that you say you know what nobody's ever accomplished this before but so what i'm gonna accomplish it and i'm gonna enforce my will wherever i set foot and just to have that i mean there's so much good and bad that goes with those attributes, but, you know, to, to literally conquer the world, you're a part of the world. Um, is, I've never, it's, since that individual has never been done to that level. So it's like, what is that? What is, what's that like, you know, what intensity level do you have to have to just step foot and say, Hey, the boss is here. I mean, it's leadership. Um, and determination and will and um, tenacity on a level that's just, I can't even, it's like fathoming like how big the universe is. I, yeah. I can't comprehend what that's like. No, I, I, that makes sense. Number four, what's something that's inspiring you right now? My kids. My kids are huge in, inspirations to me because, you know, I, I see myself and them a little bit but i i love watching their journey of them figuring it out and struggling through it but not being defeated by things and just to watch their process because i've, I've literally watched them as from the second they were born until my daughter's 25 and every time i interact with my kids i just learn something and they're just fascinating people and you know when you have kids you, you know, you love your kids, but you don't always like them. Mm -hmm. But I love my kids and I just like, they're just cool people. And I get inspired by them every day. Like my, my daughter, um, 
I said, hey, I'm just going to travel the world. So I'm going to be, I'm going to learn how to speak Spanish fluently. And then she's a Spanish translator. And she studied abroad and she now, she went to the Harvard of France. And now she works at a bank in France and speaks French fluently. And then my son, he's going to be a computer engineer. Um, my daughter is going to get accepted somewhere to an engineering program. And I'm just fascinated because they're so much smarter than, than I ever was. And just to, just to watch how their minds work is just, sometimes I just sit back and just watch and listen to the conversations and the interactions. And um, I have so much fun with them. That's cool. I mean, that transition, I mean, that's a transition into parenthood that we didn't even get into today. So mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you could write a book on that. <laughs> that might be, that might be next. Yeah. And <laughs> last one, where do you go to self-educate? Where do you go to get smarter? I go everywhere. I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm constantly learning. So traditionally, you know, you, you there's a book I read called Naked Economics um, every year. I read it because it's just the foundations of economics is that they don't really change a whole lot. And then I just, I try to incorporate different genres of reading, um, be it the classics or a, a book my friend Rich wrote, The Attributes, you know, that has a lot of um, good knowledge into it. And then sometimes I just want to read stuff that makes my brain just melt and I can just kind of go on autopilot. But then I, I just punch in something on YouTube on how you learn calculus because I was never good at math. So even though I don't understand the concepts, I just try to make myself familiar with it. Um, and I just try to get my knowledge base as diverse as possible um, because the gentleman who mentored me said, "This is you're entering a whole new space with a whole new dynamic and socioeconomic group and the rules are different so you have to know what's going on at all levels mm -hmm. and so you could be talking with a billionaire one time i got to meet a president one time um where i'm talking to a homeless guy on a train in la you know you just never know who you're going to be talking to and you really have to be you have to understand that you don't know who you're talking to this person could you can make such an impression that it could be in, or he or she could be in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt and is a billionaire. And you mentioned the right thing. It's like, hey, I'm really interested in X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, I got a guy. Here's my card. And you find out this person is very influential or he his reach is really deep or they just have the desire or the ability to help you get where you're going. So um, whenever somebody asks a question or you have to sell yourself, or you you know just immerse yourself in a conversation. Just be as knowledgeable as possible over a wide range of topics. So that's why I approach my knowledge acquisition um, so broadly. And you you talk about making an impression. I'll tell you, Mark. Your your book made an impression on me. You made an impression on me. And I can't thank you enough for coming on here sharing some of your stories i mean we didn't even get into some of them um i think I, I definitely recommend people go get the book um i think you you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot there's a there's there's so many transitions i think about that all the time and kind of everybody's life is different but that's something that's very consistent so i think it's something that we can all learn from it's it, again it's unsealed a navy seals guide to mastering life's transitions um but mark thank you so much for being on here buddy it was a blast
Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And, you know, let's do this uh, round two because, uh, I mean, there's, I think there's so much that you and I can just talk about. Um, and I'd like to get, get to know you a lot better. Absolutely. That'd be great. All right. You've been listening to the Government Huddle podcast. Check out more episodes at governmenthuddle.com and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.